Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello, and welcome to the episode. Today, we're delving into smart grids and the integration of distributed assets into both distribution networks and also other parts of the energy system. It's amazing, and I don't think amazing is too strong a word, how electricity networks have changed in some parts of the world in the last 20 years. Huge amounts of distributed generation have been connected to networks at a scale that many people thought wasn't possible uh, at the turn of the century. So a huge amount of progress has been made, but having said that, I think we're only partway through the transformation that's taking place in electricity networks. And I'd even argue that we're, well, less than halfway through that transformation. So to explore this area, I've got three great guests. Uh, let's say hello. First, Satiris Georgiopoulos, head of smart grid development at UK Power Networks, one of the six distribution network businesses in the UK, serving London and the southeast of England. Hello, Satiris. Hi, John. Um, Satiris, how your job title is clear, head of smart grid development, uh, but how do you describe your job to your friends? Or, or in other words, can you give me a non-technical description of your job? Sure. As you said, electricity networks are undergoing the biggest change they have seen in the last 150 years. My, my job is to look at our electricity grid in the southeast of England and uh, understand how we can keep the lights on, deliver excellent service, keep costs down, but at the same time accommodate renewables, electric vehicles, heat pumps, and all of these new devices that are coming onto the network. So I'm involved with the strategy, the forward-looking strategy, but also initiatives that are looking at new technologies, new commercial propositions such as flexibility, and of course, the organizational change, process and people changes that are required to get all of these changes through the line. Wow, so a big job, uh, but it must be a, a challenging but fascinating job as well. It's a, it's a hugely uh, exciting and very, very interesting job, yeah. which I've been very lucky to have, uh, to have had for many years. Well, and you've been at UK Power Networks for, for 12 years. Um, if we look uh, at part of your job, which is the integration of renewable generation into networks, how has that changed? I guess what, what I'm saying is 12 years ago, was, were you at the beginning of that, halfway through that? What, what are the big changes you've seen in the 12 years and how you integrate renewables into your network? The decade of 2020 to 2010 to 2020 was all about building out of renewable generation, distributed generation connected on the, on the network. So back in 2010, we were at the beginning of the solar boom. Yeah. Over the course of 2010 to 2015, we connected about four gigawatts of solar generation in the southeast of England. We currently have nine and a half gigawatts of generation on the network, eight gigawatts of larger generators and one and a half gigawatts of smaller under one megawatt generators, including about 150,000 residential or domestic solar solar panels. Yeah. So that was the first main change. It was the solar the cycle of the solar boom and bust 
2010 to 2015. And then yeah. in 2015, we saw the batteries coming online. There were no batteries. There was nothing about, there was a trial we had in Leighton Buzzard with, uh, we built the first battery in 2012, but there were no commercially uh, uh, installed batteries on the networks um, until 2015. So since uh, 2015, we now have about 150 megawatts of operational capacity in our networks and about a gigawatt across the UK. So again, huge, huge uh, change over the last five years in the battery front. Yeah. Okay, that's a really um, clear picture. Thanks, Satiris. We'll come back to you shortly and look at how you've accommodated or some of the techniques you've used to accommodate uh, all of that. Let's go now to my second guest, Graham Ort. Executive Vice President at Smarter Grid Solutions. Hello, Graham. Hello, John. Um, Graham, can you give our listeners an elevator pitch for Smarter Grid Solutions, please? Yeah, certainly. And first of all, thanks for inviting me on the, the podcast uh, and an opportunity to discuss various aspects of smart grids in action, um, especially decentralized, flexible, clean grids. It's been uh, the dominant part of my career, so I'm really pleased to join for that. So SmartGrid Solutions then is a leading enterprise energy management software company um, and we operate uh, across a number of countries but from bases uh, in Glasgow UK uh, and in New York in the US. Um, our distributed energy resource management systems or DERMs uh, are software products that are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, aggregators and microgrid operators primarily uh, to manage grid capacity and resilience issues and to seamlessly integrate energy assets uh, to the grid in the marketplace. Uh, so our software becomes the platform uh, that delivers lots of different business models for those customers. And just to put a couple of numbers on that, our mm -hmm. software already manages uh, over 400 megawatts of distributed energy resources, about a third of that with Satiris' company, UK Power Networks. Um, on the distribution side of our, our distribution utility side of our business, uh, we've already saved our customers over $300 million in avoided grid upgrade costs. That's one of our use cases, which we'll uh, come on to talk about, I'm sure. Um, we're primarily a software company, uh, but we do have a set of services from front-end consulting and innovation through uh, project delivery and into support as well. So we provide a, a kind of end-to-end -end full lifecycle implementation of DER management uh, capabilities. Okay, so one of the jobs you're doing then is helping people like Satiris at distribution network companies to accommodate all of that distributed generation that's coming online using your software to do that in a smart way. Yeah, that, that's right. You know, so we we have uh, since 2008, and we might say a bit more about this later. Um, you know, we've delivered this flexible connections use case for distributed generation. Yeah. And that's evolved tremendously, you know, with, with Satiris and, and some of his colleagues and other distribution utilities here in the UK and elsewhere too. Yeah. Okay, well, let's come back to that very shortly. But before we go too far, my third guest is my Delta EE colleague, John Ferris. Hello, John. Good morning, John. Um, John, we've talked a bit so far about how networks have accommodated all this distributed generation. Satiris gave a really nice picture from UK Power Networks. And but in my introduction, I said that distribution networks are only partway through their transformation. So if we take the part as a lot of distributed generation renewables being connected to grids, what's the other part that's still to come? Can you tell us uh, uh, briefly a little bit about the future challenges? Uh, certainly, although I, I think you could make the case to say that what's to come is actually the continuation of a trend that started before renewables 
with the growth of distributed generation for industrial consumers requiring backup power uh, and heat for, for their process load. So we started to see distributed power generation on the distribution networks that was participating in providing flexibility uh, in ancillary services to the, the, the transmission system operator. Now that's a trend that is continuing and, and is likely to grow at a, at a smaller and more local level as we see more electric vehicles, heat pumps and batteries on the distribution grid that are capable of responding to uh, signals to increase or decrease generation or demand and also responds to price signals. Now the, these price signals could come from the DSO. They're also increasingly coming from retailers with dynamic tariffs influencing the behavior of consumer assets on the distribution grid. So the, the DSO is having to cope not just with more assets, but also other parties looking to control assets on their grids, managing increasingly complex flows and are looking to new tools in which to, to, to manage the, the participation of, of assets and influence the behavior of, of assets on their, on their networks. And I guess that's the, the whole energy system thinking that a lot of people talk about. So uh, these, all these new heat pumps, electric vehicles, batteries being used, not, not only do they have to be accommodated into the distribution network, Saturus, that's your job, but they have to operate for the whole energy system as well. Okay, let's come on to that in the second half of the discussion. Let's go back now to um, accommodating renewables. And Graham, can we go back to that, what you said about flexible connections? Um, can you give us a, an example of, for our listeners that may not be familiar with this, what that means in terms of a renewable generator wanting to connect to the grid? Yes, that's right. So the, the flexible connection uh, really had its genesis way back in at the turn of the millennium. You know, as the as John mentioned there, uh, the UK sector was trying to grapple with the expected growth, and, and from today's perspective, that was very modest growth. Uh, but they were trying to grapple with the expected growth of uh, distributed generation, and um, that caused certain network, you know, so distribution grids problems. Uh, mostly, that was about export constraints. Uh, and so there was a need to look at alternative solutions than just uh, kind of inserting an awful lot of time or investment costs or, or cost to customers to uh, get those generators connected to the grids. And so this idea of the flexible connection came around then as a, a mechanism or a set of solutions uh, to try and tackle that. So if, for example, I've got a, a one megawatt wind turbine or I'm trying to connect to the grid, the connection can't take all the export all of the time some of the time it can, some of the time it can't, then I can have a flexible connection that will allow me to export when I can, but means I can't export when, I, when the grid can't take it. Yes, that's right, exactly. And, and, the, and there are different qualities of flexible connection. You know, clearly, if you expect a certain season of the year to create a grid constraint problem, you could just you know, uh, issue an instruction or make it part of the connection agreement that the generator must not export or must export to a limit at that time. Mm. That's clearly quite a blunt instrument. And so the, the nearer to 
delivery time and the more real time you can measure and monitor the conditions in the grids, you can maximise the amount of amount of access to grid capacity for customers, and then reduce the amount of curtailment that they might be instructed as well. And of course, that's advantageous. And that's where your software comes in to work out exactly what the grid can take and what it can't take, and optimise the generation according to that. That's right. And so uh, we would put ourselves at the more sophisticated end of the software systems that do that. Uh, so we are monitoring yeah. and managing, you know, on a second by second basis. Uh, and so, you know, if there's a generator that's behind a constraint on Satiris's network, uh, then we're monitoring all the points in the grid that there could be a congestion or a constraint problem, and then issuing a set of instructions, so not just one, but several generators, and that number is growing in the way that they are managed and aggregated is growing as well. So the sophistication of the techniques to monitor, manage in real time, and provide a really good outcome for customers is, is really paramount. So, Tiris, how, how challenging has it been to implement these sorts of solutions? Um, I guess it starts in trials and ends up towards business as usual. You know, what's that, that journey been like for you? Yeah, so we started the trials back in, in 2012, and you have to appreciate that is a fundamentally different way of thinking and planning the network, because traditionally, we would plan the network for peak capacity. So we would build peak capacity to accommodate renewables. We didn't have huge amounts of experience in terms of the diversity, the combination, you know, what it means if you combine solar and wind in an area and what capacity you might really need. So it first of all challenged our, our planning of, uh, of the network and our very traditional ways of working. Then mm -hmm. you overlay uh, some clever software and um, uh, quite complex systems integration with what it is well established in many cases legacy distribution network uh, systems. Then you have the customer aspect to it because we are interfacing directly with uh, wind farms and solar farms and anaerobic digesters. So there's a there's a journey of bringing the customers along into this. And then of course is the real time operation because it's one thing building. The, the installation and another thing, how it will behave in, in real time and how you will manage in the control center. So there are different passes, pieces of this puzzle. It's quite a complex end-to-end, -end, uh, both process control system, but also uh, has implications for, for network planning. So we did a trial in 2012 to 2015. Yeah. We connected about um, 100 megawatts. Um, actually, soon after the trial finished, because obviously we depended on the on the times for uh, uh, for the renewable generators to come online, so we connected the customers in 2016, and then my department was founded in 2016, and the business case was that looking at things like flexible connections and flexibility and the complexities, it's very difficult to do the transition from a demonstration to a wider scale rollout without dedicated focus on uh, on people and skills and the processes that are required. Yeah, the, so the, with the, did it start then in an innovation team as an innovation project? Absolutely. And then you had to absolutely. work out how to get that into business as usual. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So at UK Power Network, since 2016, we have the innovation team that is focused on on R&D and demonstration, and you have my team yeah. that are more focused on how you then um, do this as a as a more wi a wider scale rollout at, at BAU. And so in the five years, 
five years since that have you have is it is it now BAU how long did it take to get it into BAU yeah so what we started doing in 2016 we started a, a targeted um, phased rollout across our network area and the feedback we we're getting from customers was you know this is actually giving us cost-effective grid capacity can you accelerate so we yeah. we pr pressed the button in 2019 and we said it's now available to all areas uh, you you can imagine that london there isn't much stake up in london in terms of that type of uh, of generation but certainly the east of england the southeast of england and we have seen unprecedented demand since right. then so we we are in the midst of a second solar boom as we speak which is also uh, it's obviously you know solar is coming back in the market and there's a, there's a interest and people can make their business case stack up so that's one thing but the fact that through flexible connections we've made we've reopened capacity that in the past was considered closed because it was too expensive we've reopened it it has fueled a, a second if you like um, boom of renewables on our network and that's fantastic for the energy transition because otherwise as you say you'd have to either turn those solar developers away or quote connection costs that would mean they couldn't go ahead absolutely absolutely and that's the, the key benefit of flexible connections is that it's enabling generation that wouldn't have been otherwise being able to connect right so yeah. you bring in megawatts that wouldn't have been able to uh, to connect at least in our part of the of the yeah. network um so it took, you know, that's quite some journey you've described, I guess, in terms of time from 2012 to 2019, it's available everywhere. Graham, what's been your experience, I guess, as a as a software provider, you'd like that to go as, as fast as possible, but in terms of uh, your work with other network companies, is that typical? Is it is it fast? Is it, um, what's your experience been? Uh, yeah, it's a good question, and, and there's uh, there's a bit of diversity across the distribution network operators in the UK, and then and with our customers overseas, a different picture again. Uh, so first of all, in the UK, you know, uh, Satiris is describing the UK power networks journey, and that was fast, you know, from innovation in 2000, an innovation project starting in 2012, and it should mm. it should probably point out that that captured and explored a number of areas to do with the flexible connection, not all of which have made it through to business as usual yet. You know, so what information does a customer get at planning and connection stage? Uh, what, how, how does the trade-off work between getting a quicker, cheaper connection and the cost of curtailment through life for the generator? You know, what options are provided to a, a generator to mitigate that? Yeah. Those things were yeah. studied. Um, but they're only coming back now because the, the, there's such a pressing need now to make the most of the grid capacity we've got. You know, greater flexibility in the generation side is going to be an enormous part of that if we want to avoid the incredibly high costs of just building lots more assets. And so those questions of you know, what are the options for a customer, what information a customer needs, can they mitigate some of the curtailment, uh, these questions are coming back quite significantly. Yeah. I remember a, a case study from another network company, not your Satiris, of a farmer wanting to put up a wind turbine, being absolutely furious at the cost he was quoted from the network company for connecting because the network did need reinforcement to accommodate it. But then with a flexible connection, finding a way forward at very low connection cost. And then he was delighted at the end. Um, 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, John, the, the overall pro principle of, um, you know, connecting and managing instead of, instead of building network, peak network holds, irrespective of who bears the cost. So even if the the charging regime changes and the the connection costs, you know, are borne by the DNO in the future, the the type of technology that we have developed gives you that ability to dynamically run the network to enable effective constraint management. Because at the at the end of the day, you know, just building peak network to accommodate the peak capacity of uh, of generation is not going to be cost effective. So one way or the other, we'll have to manage the network using yeah. these flexible approaches. Yeah, and it takes time as well to to build out the network. Absolutely, absolutely. If I going back. Oh, sorry, Steve. If, if I step back in, then you know, picking up that story and, and it picks up what Satiris has just said. You know that regulatory and commercial side and the, the imperative to have an efficient system and an efficient uh, distribution network that connects as many customers as possible. Uh, I mean that that's being dealt with in a number of different ways and has been. So that period from those early innovation projects through to business as usual has looked at. You know, we've been now been through one regulatory price control in the United Kingdom with another one just about to come as well and the trade-off between who pays for what how those costs are allocated uh, how operational efficiency of a you know flexible connection is incentivized all these things are, are coming back now and that's been part of that you know 2010-12 journey onwards mm -hmm. of you know yes committing to offering a flexible connection wherever possible Yes, putting in the systems that, that underpin that, you know, including including what we do. Um, but yes, look, now looking at all the planning, the commercial, the regulatory aspects, and now market aspects. I'm sure we'll go on to markets as well. So a good point. It's not just a technology. It's a, having the right regulatory framework to to incentivise this as well. Um, I'd like to look forward a bit now. So we've talked about flexible generation connections. Uh, and at the challenges that John you outlined earlier on in, in the podcast, Graham, in terms of smarter grid solutions, I guess you've got one. We've talked about one thing you've done, but you've got a broader focus. Can you um, bring that to life a bit and just sort of give our listeners an idea of what else, what other roles you might be playing in the energy transition or beyond helping generators to connect? What other things? problems that you're, you're trying to solve for, for your customers? Yeah, it's a good question, John. Thanks for bringing that up because you know our work with the distribution network companies is is some of our most important work. You know, it's core to what we do. It's, the, it's part of the genesis of the company and the, the software that we've developed, the, the technology that we, we now deliver. And um, but that's not the end of the story. You know, on to the top of what we've been describing so far, you know, we require integration from uh, distribution utility systems to marketplaces to information systems to customer systems to aggregator systems because flexibility won't just be about the flexible generation connection front of the meter it'll be about flexibility in terms of uh, load and generation turn up turn down under different market mechanisms we've been adding quite a lot of capability to our products that, that can do that and then beyond that uh, that same technology of monitoring and managing and optimizing and integrating to markets, that's then incredibly valuable for other sorts of customers too. So, you know, energy service companies or aggregators need that same underpinning technology uh, to manage increasingly diverse fleets and portfolios of distributed energy assets. And, you know, 
either deliver some on-site value streams or deliver some services to the distribution grids or deliver services yeah. into wholesale or ancillary service markets. So optimizing, stacking, coordinating all of that flexibility is, is exactly what a product's doing. It can do that for other customer types too. So what we've talked about before was optimizing renewable generation for the distribution network, but you can optimize assets not only, or you will need to optimize assets not only for the distribution network, but for other parts of the energy system. Um, yes, that's right. So, so one of our yeah. one of our big customers is an energy services company. They have they own their own distributed energy assets, but they also manage and trade uh, distributed energy assets for their uh, customers. Our platform uh, that's deployed with them is then providing them the capability to aggregate the control of all of those different uh, customer assets and then provide services from those as a as a whole to the distribution company or to, to the wholesale market and that's actually quite similar so although it's for a different customer type it's quite similar to what we're, we're doing with uh, UK Power Networks and some other yeah. distribution companies where you know aggregating provide, providing an access point for aggregators to offer services and provide flexibility services that's something else that we're doing also. So Tiris how does that fit with your world because I guess you're you've got to integrate more and more assets into your network renewable generators, electric vehicles, heat pumps, but those assets, as Graham said and John said at the beginning, won't just be used for your networks, they'll be used for other things. So how does that overlay onto your challenges in the next years? Yeah, so I think for us looking over the next decade, um, yes, we'll have to continue working on, on distributed and renewable generation because there's more to come and grid scale storage, but really electric vehicles and the low voltage network are the areas that we need to make um, most progress uh, given the significant take up we might see over the next few years so there's a there's a couple of things first of all is uh, visibility of the of the low voltage network and understanding with a combination of analytics and monitoring what is actually going on uh, there and what how the assets are behaving and what does it mean for the capacity of the network because previously and then the second Previously, you haven't had sensors on that part of the network. You have on higher voltages, but not down at the very low voltages. Co co correct, John, because we didn't need to. It was a fairly yeah. passive passive system. So, you know, from a cost efficiency point of view, you didn't need to monitor it because you could you could know what's going to happen. You could predict this predictable yeah. behavior, not anymore. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, and, and that, that was one, that first one, yeah. Yeah, and then the second one is, again, is around flexibility. Uh, we, we just um, announced last week the uh, results of our latest flexibility tender round and we managed to procure about 250 megawatts of forward-looking uh, capacity with uh, EV charging companies, EV aggregators, smart charging companies. So again, um, going back to John's point is, we, you know, we are making our strides in securing flexibility, which is the first step, which is, you know, very positive, uh, you know, hugely exciting news. And then the question is, how can that flexibility be delivered in, an, in a coordinated manner with the rest of the markets? John, what's the answer to that question? Is there an answer or is this all work in progress at the moment? Well, I think both, both Graham and Satiris have described a number of ways that that flexibility can be, can be accessed. And I think one of the big questions for network operators at the moment is that balance between giving price signals for procurement of flexibility and the ability of an aggregator 
whether that's a third party or the network to control assets that mm -hmm. if if the network can decide that you can't charge your car at particular times then that's likely to have a big impact on the confidence in people to take on EVs and roll out the low carbon devices. So that these, these trends all have to move together in lockstep where the network needs to balance the requirement for control with the ability to influence behavior in a way that isn't as, as heavy handed as the networks might have used in the past. And one, yes, one, one important sorry. thing to add to that, I think, is that uh, control complements markets. You know, so what we're seeing, one way to mitigate the the downside of curtailment of generation, you know, as we were discussing earlier, is to turn up demand in the local area. And now marketplaces can uh, bring those who can flex their generation and flex demand in that way together. Um, but to keep a, a grid and an overall energy system safe and secure, you know, there needs to be a control authority, if, if you want to use that terminology, where you know orchestrating the market possibilities with the direct control opportunities and, and requirements, you know, making those right decisions in the, at the right moment, uh, that will provide efficiency through the market, lots of customer participation, plenty of flexibility, also an overall secure and, uh, and stable uh, grid. Yeah, and you can, you can think of our flexibility tenders as incentives. So we are incentivizing consumers to not um, charge, for example, between six and nine, which is the, the LV flexibility uh, tender. Uh, but we don't necessarily exercise control over the customer's behavior. We rely on the, the companies, the providers that, you know, offering the service to, to the customers to essentially um, put forward a proposition that you know takes into account these incentives, but essentially um, you know drives that behavioural change and benefits the customer. So the customer gets what they want, which is a charge card at, uh, in the morning when they need it. But at the same time, you know the grid or the system operator can can also get what they need in terms of managing the the network. What's that balance, Sapphira? Do you think between the incentives or the price signals and then control? Um, I guess the more the more incentives and the less control, the better. But some control where we need it? I think you need to consider control. Um, and again, I, I wouldn't advocate that this control is a direct control from the DNO. You know, there are many different ways you can you can do it. But, mm. you know, you might consider control for extreme events. Uh, but but certainly, I think in the, in the first instance, um, we should try to drive through price signals and incentives like consumer behavior. Yeah. So there's a sort of hierarchy that you'd like to to go with where yeah, yeah. 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 and that, that and, um, works in time as well you know as you get up to the last minute or second as a an event or a, an urgent need uh, is required you tend to need to move to control uh, one thing that we've mm. been uh, delivering more and more for customers is you know one hour ahead 24 hour ahead one week ahead so with the market outcomes scheduling and optimizing what is required against the forecast but knowing that you've got yeah. the backstop in the last minutes and the last seconds to make sure uh, that, that any uh, kind of urgent last action can be taken in a secure way as well. And in actual fact, that's the way transmission systems in the wholesale markets have worked for a long time. You, you, yeah. you this long lead-in time from months, weeks, hours uh, ahead, but then you, you've also got the in-the-real time control, which is, is, is often the, the required backstop. 
Yeah, that's a good way of thinking. I guess, as you say, wholesale energy markets have worked with uh, contracts a year ahead through to gate closure and then balancing within gate closure. So the same thing coming to, to net distribution networks. Um, John, do you think all of this ultimately will result in more localization in how our energy system in general and networks in particular are managed? Will that have to work on a more local basis than, than we're used to in the past? It is certainly a change to the distribution network where demand was the driver of investment in the network. And the the, the DNO was looking to, to build out network and to control the flow of power into their networks. Now you see much more localization where at the same time you could have demand congestion in one area and generation congestion in another. So you can't have a global solution that satisfies mm -hmm. both of those situations. So you have yeah. to have local solutions and local um, local influences, as well as ultimately that local control to, to, to manage the grid. Well, it sounds like, Satiris, there'll be lots to keep you busy in the next years, and Graham, lots of solutions that you can help your customers with in the next years. Um, let's finish as always with the bring out the talking new energy crystal ball and set the dial this week to 2030 so nine years ahead and I'd like to ask you each quite a broad question but uh, for the sake of time if you can answer it in around 30 seconds or so um, so the question is this how if we look at 2030 what will it look like for distribution networks in how they're integrating and working with renewable generation, EV charging, electric heating, demand side flexibility, all those things we've talked about. So I appreciate you could write a, a PhD thesis and some people are writing a PhD thesis on this question. Uh, but if you fast forward to 2030, uh, if you could each give a view about what distribution networks, how, how they'll be coordinating all these assets and working with these assets. assets. Let's go to Tiris, you first, and then Graham, and then John. Sure. Um, yeah, so I think flexibility will be everywhere. We'll be able to, to harness it um, and use it. Consumers wouldn't need to be engaged or too involved in it, but we should be able to use it for, um, uh, for the purposes of managing the distribution network. And also, within that, we'll also have realized that we need to think about the system as a bottom-up system rather than a centralized top-down system. Okay. Great answer and bang on time. Thanks, Atiris. Um Graham, how about yourself? Uh, yeah, so I think we've talked about the scale of decentralized energy and, and markets and flexibility. So if uh, the overall system is going to have those new markets, lots of different market access points, lots of different participants, uh, lots of new data sources, you know, from planning to operations to markets, new customer propositions, new participants, more local solutions, more flexibility. If all that stuff's going to happen, uh, then we need systems that can seamlessly uh, join those things together, coordinate them, uh, make them work efficiently, and make them work for customers. Uh, so we need to make sure that information's in the right place, that the actions are the right, the actions taken are the right ones, whether economic or technical or customer doing something or for carbon reasons, and that that's all settled from financial terms, but also carbon and energy flow terms. We are, you know, we're excited about all of that challenge and the need to integrate seamlessly, and that that's definitely what we're all about. 
So a lot, a lot to do, a lot of many, many different parts of that that need to come together. And last but not least, John. All I would add to Satirith and, and Graham is that bottom-up planning that there's going to be much more participation of communities and local authorities in that local area, energy area planning uh, to determine what's the right mix of assets, what's feasible in their areas, and much more engagement with the local network operator to determine the investment and operation and the flexibility that they can provide. Thanks very much. Um, so, yeah, I think a very joined up uh, perspective on 2030, lots and lots of challenges, as I said, lots to keep many people busy and lots that need to happen to get us to the, the low carbon future with all these distributed resources that we'll need in, by, by 2030. So thanks very much, uh, Satiris, thanks for joining. Um, Thank you, thanks, thanks for the invite, John. No, it's a pleasure, thanks, Graham. Yes, thanks very much. Great conversation. Uh, and thank you, John. Thank you. Um, thanks, as always, to uh, you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the, the having the spotlight on Sean on distribution networks and smart grids. Uh, a topic we'll be coming back to in future podcasts, I'm sure. And look forward to welcoming you back to next week's episode. Thanks and goodbye. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcasts and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com. Thank you.